Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. Has anything ever happened to you or around you, meaning family members, close friends, but it's affected you? Anything ever happened that felt so overwhelming you didn't know what to do next? You felt paralyzed. You didn't know your next step. Sometimes unknown things can affect us that way. Sometimes you know exactly what you're facing and it can feel paralyzing. It's a diagnosis, a job change, a relationship that turned in a direction that you didn't want to have to face. Being paralyzed is a response, a response that many of you have encountered. There is another response to circumstances that basically fall at the opposite end of the spectrum. So some of you are confronted with an overwhelming situation, and it causes you to do nothing. Others of you are confronted with an overwhelming situation, and you say, let's go. We've got work to do. If that's typical of you, then you're not paralyzed. You're motivated. You find a way forward, and you're ready to act on it. It's, let's do something about it now. Well, there's a third response to a perceived need that Nehemiah wants to teach us, and it's this, fervent, focused, your heart pouring out prayer. As many of you are well aware, this week, we began our 50 Days to Vitality devotional. If you don't have one of those in your hands, then after worship, as you make your way out, there'll be a table that have those on it. They are yours to take. Not only will it define an eight-week series that we're doing together with daily readings, daily scripture, we're all doing it together. And then these Sundays come on the heels of that So this past week, then, you know that the focus has been on Nehemiah chapter 1. But before we dive back into his story, it's helpful to put Nehemiah and his situation into perspective. Nehemiah dates right at 445 B.C. fairly accurately. Let me give you a little history. Here's what's been going on with God's people. Now, I'm not going to take us all the way back to the beginning of history, but let me take you back to what is referred to as kind of the golden age of Israel when King David ascended the throne, roughly 1000 B.C. Upon his death, Solomon, his son, reigned for 40 years, the dates roughly 970 to 930 B.C. But after Solomon's death, the Two kingdoms emerged, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And what ensued was a succession of kings, kings in the north, kings in the south. Some of them were good and godly kings. Most were not. They not only allowed, but participated in and encouraged the worship of pagan gods. They would have blatant disregard for the Lord and His commands. Through this rampant disobedience, the Lord then allowed foreign empires to come in and conquer His people. 
The first were the Assyrians over that northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah was able to withstand any onslaught for roughly another 150 years, but eventually the Babylonians came to power. They conquered the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. And what the Babylonians did to those from Judah is that they led many, and these would be God's people, away, led them away to Babylon, and that is often referred to as Babylonian captivity. After about 50 years, the Persians came to power, and eventually the Persians allowed the Jews to begin returning to Jerusalem. The return of these Jewish exiles seemed to have happened in four waves, four phases over the course of a hundred plus years. The third of those phases was led by Ezra, whose book of the Bible precedes Nehemiah. Nehemiah led the fourth wave, 445 B.C. Now, Nehemiah was not a prophet. He did no miracles. He was not a priest, he wasn't a teacher, he wasn't a judge, he was actually a servant of a foreign king. Who's the king, and why do we know it's 445 B.C.? We'll get there. Here is God's holy and inerrant word from Nehemiah chapter 1, hear it again. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. He's introducing himself and his family. He's saying he's Jewish. He belongs to the Jews. In the month of Keslev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, there's several things going on here. Keslev, spelled with a K in this text, some translations have it beginning with a CH, is a Hebrew month that is the equivalent of a time period for us between November and December. And it says it was in the 20th year. 20th year of what? We'll get there. And he's in Susa. Susa is the winter residence of the Persian kings. It is situated 760 miles from Jerusalem, just inside the border of Iran next to Iraq. Excavations have been done there. You can go there and see them. I caution you. You probably don't want to go near Iran, but you can. In any case, Hanani, one of my brothers, Nehemiah says, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So, here's this group of folks who have traveled those 760 miles to reach Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah do? He's never been to Jerusalem. He's not ever seen the city or the temple. He probably knew some of those who left under Ezra's leadership some 13 years earlier. He knew them. But what does he do when he meets his brother and these fellow Jews who have come to Jerusalem? He seems to have asked them all sorts of questions. He's probably wondering, well, how are the folks doing? How, how is so-and-so? And 
Is the Lord's work prospering? Tell me about the church in Jerusalem. Tell me about the people of God. Tell me about Ezra's preaching. Because when he was here in, 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 in Susa with us in Babylon, he was such a noted preacher. What is he preaching on? Is it, is it Genesis or, or Exodus? I'm sure it's not Luke. <laughs> Nehemiah, thanks. Oh, oh he, he's teaching on Deuteronomy. Well, uh, are the people receiving it? Are they taking notes? Are they asking good questions? Are they growing? Are they thriving? And what did he hear? Bad news. Things are not going well. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are now back in the province, meaning of Judah, which includes Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, I don't know about you, but it, it made me want to question, why did they tell Nehemiah any of this? Why travel 760 miles to burden him with this news? Remember, he's not a priest, he's not a teacher, he's not a judge. He's, well, i got to take you there. Skipping ahead to the last line of Nehemiah chapter 1, we read this. I was cupbearer to the king. That means he was the wine tester. It is a phenomenally important job. You see, the thing that kings feared most about if somebody wanted to get rid of a king, you would do it by poisoning them, their food, their, their drink. And so what, Nehemiah, what, what the, the king would do is he would hire someone that he had to completely trust to be his wine tester. So wherever the king was, the cupbearer was there. Whenever the king ate, which was several times a day, the cupbearer had to be there. And here's how it would go. Before they handed the king a glass of wine, they gave Nehemiah that glass of wine, and he drank. And they'd wait a few minutes. If Nehemiah didn't fall to the floor, the wine was fine to drink. So what we have learned is that Jerusalem is partly rebuilt. They've already rebuilt the temple, but there are no protecting walls or gates to provide security from surrounding nations that might want to invade. So they come to Nehemiah to see if he can intervene on their behalf to the king. You see, the Jews don't have lobbyists. They didn't have people who could go to the king themselves. They had no one except one person, Nehemiah. He's not a highly placed official. He serves, but he serves the king, which means he has access to the king Maybe his brother and the others said something like, Nehemiah, we need you to come. You would be the perfect person to come to Jerusalem and help us. And he's got to be thinking, I can't come. I'm the cupbearer to the king. How could I possibly come? Something pretty dramatic, something pretty extraordinary would have to happen to allow me to leave. 
Whatever his desires might be, he had no idea how God was going to use him. So here's what I want to do right now. I want to make an assumption that I hope is true of everyone here, that you want to know your purpose. Here's every believer's main purpose, to glorify God, to be in a relationship with Him, and to be used by Him. Included in that assumption is that you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, trusting in His shed blood to cover your sins. If you haven't done that, you can't be of use to the Lord. But if you have done that, if you have come to declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible is clear that you have been given a gift, a spiritual gift to use in His service. But there's so much more to serving God than just talking about it. God wants to use each one of us, but He wants to develop us into people who are more usable to Him. For a great illustration of that, we turn back to the life of Nehemiah and his response. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You get the sense that that's all he focused on. He had a job to do, but outside of that... He wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. Our text says for several, for some days, it says. Well, let me jump ahead one more time. This time to just outside of this past week's reading. So I'm cheating. I'm going to go to chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. This is still Nehemiah. Now, I want you to note two things. We have the name of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, whose reign began in 465 B.C. This is the 20th year. That's how we know it is 445 B.C. Nehemiah was confronted with what's going on in Jerusalem. But the second thing I want to point out is I did not mispronounce the name of the month. It is Nisan. It is not a Japanese car. But here's the important thing about that month. It is the equivalent of our March to April. When did his brother and fellow Jews come to speak to him? It was November, December. For four months, Nehemiah mourned, fasted, prayed. I'm going to read the rest of this text. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. It was already happening, right? But if you return to me and obey my commands, 
then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there, bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah's prayer continues. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the Persian king, Artaxerxes. I was the cupbearer to the king. Number one. The person God uses has a burden for God's people. When God wants you to serve in some capacity, the first thing He's going to do is burden your heart with a situation and your mind cannot let it go. I want you to notice three things about Nehemiah's burden. A, his burden stemmed from filling the people's great need. Other Jews living in Babylon had probably heard about the conditions in Jerusalem, shook their heads and said, my, my, that's too bad. They went back to their work in Babylon thinking, what a tragedy. But they were not burdened by the need to do something. But the person God used not only heard about the need, he felt their need. He wept, mourned, fasted, prayed day after day. He just couldn't put it out of his mind. Maybe you're wondering, you know, as I look around, the needs are so many and so great. How can I possibly respond to them all? How can I discern which particular need it is that God wants me to be involved? Two thoughts. Number one, don't let the immensity of the situation cause you to do nothing. Sometimes we hear about overwhelming needs in the world and we run for cover and we want to put a barricade around our hearts so that we don't move at all. And we end up engrossed in our own personal pursuits of pleasure and ignore the needs of others. Well, in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and hopeless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. They were like sheep without a shepherd. How many people do you know that you'd say, they need Jesus? Pray. Pray to have the sight to see those needs. Pray to have the heart compassion to do something about it. But second, don't commit yourself to jumping in just because the need is there. There are endless needs. You don't have to respond to all the world's needs. No one can. Wait on God in prayer until He burdens your heart with a particular need. B. Nehemiah's burden was focused by seeing the people's great sin. Remember his prayer. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah was realistic. 
in assessing the situation. He quickly realized that the heart of things was not a lack of organization. It wasn't a lack of resources and funds. The problem was not other nations attacking Jerusalem. The problem was disobedience of the Jews that got them into that situation in the first place. You know, the Bible is clear that the root of all of our global and personal problems is sin. Why are there wars and terrorist attacks? Sin. Why is there disease and famine? Sin. Why are businesses riddled with greed and corruption? Sin. Why is the mission task of the church unfulfilled? Sin. On a personal level. Why do couples argue and, and not communicate? Sin. Why do kids from Christian homes rebel against God and their parents? Sin. Whatever the problem, you can trace its roots back to sin, either the original sin with Adam and Eve, meaning we live in a fallen world, or directly to the sins of the people with the problem. But it's not just the sins of others that we need to be aware of. We are also to be made aware of our own sins. Nehemiah included himself in this prayer. You see, staying aware of our sins keeps us from lording it over someone else. It keeps us from sitting in judgment over others. Because I'm a sinner who's been shown great mercy. So I go to other sinners and offer God's mercy. But we dare not get distracted from the root problem. If we start thinking that the real need is better organization, more funds, better methods, we'll start at the wrong place. The root need is for repentance on the part of God's people. Because we have forgotten God's purpose and lived for our own purpose And lost people need repentance to be reconciled to God. C, Nehemiah's burden was lightened by seeing the people's great God. He begins his prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's focused on God at the beginning. Near the end of the prayer, they're your servants. And your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Five times in that last line, you or your is used. Meaning God wants us to feel a burden for others, but then He wants us to roll that burden back on Him, remembering that it's not under our power, but His power that redeems them, that releases them that saves them. What if you honestly don't have a burden for God's people or for lost people? What does that mean? What should you do? It means you're not concerned with the things that God is concerned with. And if that's your condition, you need to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus to lead you. Now, the second quality of the person God uses, and by the way, these last two will go fairly quick. The person God uses has a vision for his purpose. If Nehemiah had looked, had lacked a vision of God's purpose, when he heard about the conditions in Jerusalem, he would have just said, why bother with Jerusalem? 
We haven't lived there for over 100 years. Who cares who or where they worship? But Nehemiah knew something about what God wanted to do with his people. God had said, and this was part of his prayer. Was he reminding God or was he reminding himself and his people? God said, I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God's purpose in our day and time involves the church. Jesus said in Matthew, I will build my church. In Revelation 5, it is said that Jesus purchased for God with His blood persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. But why does God want to save people around the world? Be careful how you answer. Because we live in a human-centered age, we can easily fall into the trap of thinking, well, it's because God loves them and wants to make them happy. That's a human-centered goal. Look, God does love people, but He's not concerned with making us happy as He is in us being in a relationship with Him. According to Ephesians, the church exists to promote the joy of salvation that His people experience through Jesus Christ. And the third quality of the person that God uses has a commitment to His purpose. Nehemiah didn't hear about the sad situation in Jerusalem and say, that's too bad, I hope somebody does something. Rather, he was willing to commit himself to the task and to stick with it in spite of numerous difficulties. There's two things about his commitment. He was willing to count the world as lost for the sake of God's purpose. Remember, he lived in a palace with a king. Excavations in Susa show that that palace was built with gold and silver and ivory and cedar. He would have had the best of food, worn the best of clothes, lived in pretty comfortable quarters. It was a pretty cushy job. We don't know why he didn't return with Ezra 13 years earlier. But now when he hears the distress of God's people and the dishonor of God's name, he cannot be happy in his great job and his comfortable life. He was willing to make the difficult journey to Jerusalem and set about the stressful job of mobilizing the people to rebuild the walls so that God's name could be honored among his people. Was it a costly sacrifice for Nehemiah? Yes and no. Yes, and that he had to leave those comfortable surroundings and endure hardships. But no, it wasn't a sacrifice in the fact that he knew that what he was doing was not what the Lord wanted him to do. He found greater joy in serving the Lord in what he wanted him to do. And finally, he was willing to overcome the obstacles for the sake of God's purpose. The Persian king, Artaxerxes, allowed Nehemiah to leave. I said that he didn't have any miracles. Well, maybe that was one. 
The rest of the book of Nehemiah is an account of how he overcame one obstacle after another. There were overt and covert oppositions from enemies. There were problems within the ranks of the Jewish people themselves that could have stopped the building. But Nehemiah persisted. And the walls and the gates were reconstructed in 52 days. I want you to know this. If you try to do anything in the service of the Lord, you will face obstacles and opposition. Some of it will come from the world. But some of the most difficult opposition often comes from within the church. And you have to realize up front that you will encounter problems. But to go ahead and commit yourself to God and His purpose allows you to endure. Let me close with this challenge to all of us, but especially those of you who are are younger. Don't throw away your life seeking to achieve the American dream of financial security, early retirement, and and an RV just so you can roam around the country capturing oddities on your camera. Have as your goal The only purpose that lasts is to see the nations glorify God for His great mercy in Jesus Christ. The praise team is going to come back. We're about to move into the time of the Lord's Supper. But as we do this in our prayer is I want to leave time for us to confess. Not a, I'm not asking you to do that out loud. Hey, tell me your deepest, darkest things in front of everybody. But just like Nehemiah, what is it that's stopping us from having a, a fuller relationship with God and Jesus Christ? What is that obstacle for you? What wall are, are, is in your way? Nehemiah was building a wall for protection. We want to know that our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ, that's our protection. That's our security. Salvation is ours by saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. His shed blood to cover my sins on the cross. Let us go before Him in prayer. Make your own at this moment. situation we're facing, Lord. Help us turn back to you. Let us be a part of that remnant that comes back, that you're gathering to do great things. Not just so that we can leave here going, 
yay, I feel good because I'm, I'm his, I belong to him. Is there a difference that we're going to make with that news, with that knowledge? What does the rest of this week look like for us? When we leave this hour, we're still worshiping you. We're still in your presence. Impress that upon us, Lord. And as we move toward this table, the recognition that we need a Savior. Our sins are too many and too great. All we had to do was commit one, and we are sinners. The Bible reminds us that no one does right. Not one person is good enough. Only one was perfect. That was Jesus Christ. And you, in your perfection, were the spotless lamb that took us and our sins on. So, Father, we thank you that you've gathered us around this table and around this bread as we're remembering that this is all from you. We simply want to say thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.